0: 20, 27 through 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise. All seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose life will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. All live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Gospel of the Lord.
1: Well, I'd like to start off by saying that I didn't specifically intend for this passage to land on Mother's Day. I just sort of, you know, mapped out the sermon schedule as we've been going through Luke, and this is where this particular text happened to land with this um, crazy story about a woman who has seven husbands who all die and leave her childless. Um, happy Mother's Day. Uh, great text to wind up preaching on Mother's Day, whole uh, wife and mother role that we honor today. Uh, don't get too attached to it, it's not forever. Uh, I mean, for, for my wife, that might be good news. There's light at the end of the tunnel, so that's good. Um, I do think there is some encouragement uh, that even applies to Mother's Day in this passage, which we'll, we'll get to hopefully later on. Uh, But before we dig into the passage, I want to make sure we're all on the same page that this is not even primarily about uh, marriage or motherhood. Um, Jesus didn't spontaneously decide to teach people about a marriage in the age to come. Uh, This episode is one of a series of confrontations that uh, Jesus has with the Jewish leaders after he enters Jerusalem. Again, this is the, the, the week following Palm Sunday. He rode in on a donkey as a king, uh, went into the temple, started acting like he owned the place, kicked people out, all that stuff, and they come to challenge him. Uh, And the Sadducees who are challenging him here, they're an interesting group. Uh, They're kind of elitists compared to the Pharisees that we usually meet. Uh, They're not so popular with the common folk, but uh, maybe a little more popular with Rome. They have a good deal of wealth and power. Uh, They're responsible, I guess, they tell us, for maintaining the temple as well as they have some civil positions. But in terms of their beliefs, uh, as you see here, they don't acknowledge the resurrection from the dead. As a matter of fact, they don't even believe in, in angels or human souls. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it for them. And they only recognize the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so all those beliefs um, come up in this confrontation, actually. There are ideas about scripture, there are ideas about angels, uh, there are ideas about the resurrection from the dead, and most notably, of course, the discussion focuses on the resurrection. So what we have is another powerful group challenging Jesus' authority. And just to recap, we've seen a couple others at this point when he first came into town, uh, came into the temple. We saw the chief priests and scribes, elders of the people, uh, just point blank asking him where he has the authority to do these things. Where do you get off acting like this? And uh, we saw already their attempt failed. Uh, next, some people tried to pit Caesar's authority against Christ's, and we saw last week that didn't work either. And now an adventurous group is attempting a biblical and theological argument with Christ. Moses wrote for us, they begin. So let's go to the writings of Moses, uh, pit Jesus' authority against the authority of Scripture they thought was a good plan. We'll see how this plays out. And we will essentially look at three questions, sort of by way of an outline. first, what is Jesus saying about marriage? I'm sure you want to know, so we'll have to get to that one first. And second, what is Jesus saying about the resurrection, the age to come? And then third. What does all of this tell us about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do? So first, what is Jesus saying about marriage? Before I answer that, we should look at the Sadducees' question and their scenario here in depth a little bit more. Again, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they create this kind of crazy-sounding but theoretically possible scenario, uh, which Trey read for us essentially i'll just summarize it like this a woman's husband dies leaves her childless according to the law she marries her late husband's brother so there's step one and step two then we repeat steps one and step two until she runs out of brothers to marry and then the woman herself dies so as as it's been called i didn't come up with this on my own but you have one bride for seven brothers now a modern observer might ask two questions at least about the scenario first are we sure that all these guys died of natural causes? (laughs) Is it possible that these guys, they just couldn't hold their arsenic, if you catch my meaning? (laughs) The other thing you might wonder is, Jesus doesn't address that question, I don't know. I guess, I guess, no, it's just freak circumstances, but other thing you might wonder, isn't it a little weird to marry your late husband's brother even once, let alone six times, but uh, of course, the Pharisees answer that for us in the text. Moses wrote for us that if, if a, brother, a man's brother dies having no wife, having a wife but no children, rather, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So under the old covenant, preserving the family line, passing on the inherited land, that was very important. Uh, God had promised. To bring blessing to all families of the earth through this nation of Israel. And so this idea, it's called leveret marriage. Leveret comes from, I think, maybe a Latin word that means brother-in-law or something. But so marrying your brother's widow is a way of continuing his inheritance because the children would be the the dead man's heirs. Uh, Except in this case where everybody dies. Again, what an uplifting text for Mother's Day. But the point the Pharisees are trying to make is that, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees are trying to make, is that this scenario makes the resurrection impossibly absurd. If they're all raised from the dead, then seven men are going to be husbands to this one woman. And Maybe in their heads one man with seven wives might be okay, but one woman with seven husbands is just bonkers. She can only have one husband, so which one is it going to be? I don't know, the first one? Who cares? That's her problem, right? I, I don't know. But they're asking Jesus, not me, so they get a better answer than that. What does Jesus actually say about marriage? Well, he makes a contrast between two ages, uh, the age, this age, and the age to come. The sons of this age, but those who are worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection. We'll get back to that idea of the ages later. Um, But as a side note here, uh, when he talks about marrying and giving in marriage... Those are just verbs that apply to men and to women respectively. You know, In English, we say a man marries a woman, the woman marries the man, they marry each other. Uh, In biblical Greek, the man marries the woman, and the woman is given in marriage or consents to be married. uh, To the bridegroom, they use different verbs there. I'm not necessarily trying to draw any conclusions about the nature of marriage from that fact. It's just the way their language worked. So because of that, we can conclude that the sons of this age must also include women, since the sons of this age both marry and are given in marriage, and women are given in marriage in their language, but um, that's why some translations might say children of this age uh, rather than sons of this age. You can do what you want with that, uh, just free some free grammatical sidebars for those who might be interested in why it says marry and are given in marriage. Uh, but this, the point is that marriage as we know it belongs to this current Age. So what about the age to come? Well, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Well, so here we go. The overwhelming majority of interpreters do say this means marriage will not exist in the age to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. This means that when we are raised from the dead, the institution of marriage will be left behind. The question that comes to all of our minds is why, right? Well, Jesus says it's because we don't die, but we'll be like the angels. But how do those facts put an end to marriage? Let me say what I think is not the case. It's not the case that we simply exist as disembodied spirits or as sort of genderless, androgynous spirits. That's not what like the angels means. Angels in Scripture, for one thing, are not the spirits of the dead. We don't become angels. Angels, according to the Bible, are a separate kind of being created by God. So you don't die and become an angel, popular as that idea may have become. And this is a bodily resurrection. Christ's tomb is empty, and as he is raised, so we shall be raised. His body is alive. It's a glorified body. In some way, we don't fully understand, but it's still a physical body, still the same body. C.S. Lewis famously said that God likes matter. That's why he created it. Our final hope is not that our souls will fly away from this fleshly prison and go to heaven, but that our bodies are raised incorruptible and we live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's no reason to suspect that those bodies will somehow become genderless, androgynous, neither male nor female. They'll be the same bodies that we have now, only glorified. Angels, by the way, here's some more free background information. They were not seen uh, by the Jews of that day as asexual. course the Sadducees I mentioned didn't believe in them at all but those who did believe in angels also believed that angels were the sons of God in Genesis 6 who took women as human women as wives and had giant babies with them that may or may not be the correct understanding of Genesis 6 uh, but the point is that's how they viewed angels so like the angels would not have meant to them uh, genderless spirit so whatever the reason for marriage ending in the new age might be we know it's not that Uh, common explanations are given some teachers riff on the statement of jesus they cannot die anymore and say that well we won't need procreation uh, because people won't die Uh, in this age people keep dying so we need to keep procreating to keep humanity going without death there's no no need for that to continue um, humanity's existence and we need marriage for procreation, so without a need for procreation, there's no need for marriage. Um, that's possible. A couple issues. Uh, you know, procreation isn't a response simply to the reality of death. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply even before Adam sinned and brought death into the world. And, and secondly, more importantly, procreation isn't the only purpose for marriage, right? Uh, God created man and said it's not good for him to be alone. I don't think that's just because he couldn't make babies by himself. That's not the sole purpose for marriage, right? Marriage is also about companionship and it's also about pointing toward the relationship between Christ and the church. Now it's possible that those two needs no longer exist in heaven. For it said that people won't need the in intimate companionship of marriage anymore because we have a perfect relationship with God. But Adam had a perfect relationship with God in the garden, didn't he? And it still wasn't good for him to be alone uh, without the woman. Then again, maybe our relationship with God is closer than it was uh, in the garden. Uh, Maybe due to the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and the church is called the bride. Paul in Ephesians indicates that marriage was designed to be a, a picture, to point us to the relationship between Christ and the church from the beginning this is probably the most convincing reason we might not need marriage in heaven it was a sign pointing us to a greater fulfillment once it's been fulfilled the sign passes away uh, for that reason uh, i've heard some people like to say that there will be marriage in heaven marriage between christ and the church probably want to be clear that that's a metaphor Talked about last week, I've mentioned before, Christ is not a metaphorical king, he is an actual king. It's a bit different when we talk about Jesus as, as the bridegroom. Uh, there is the marriage between Christ and the church, it's obviously not identical to a marriage as we know it now, but uh, that still that's the best reason I know for explaining why marriage might not exist in the new heavens and the new earth, because the, the, the thing that it's designed to point us to will have been fulfilled Uh, I will mention here, I heard an interesting alternative viewpoint from a seminary professor last summer, I don't know how we got on this topic at all, but he took the terms marrying and given in marriage to refer to the the idea of vows and and covenant ceremony, which he said in his view are necessary because it's a fallen world to protect the integrity of that one flesh union uh, that we commonly call marriage. So perhaps in the new heavens and the new earth, without sin, there's no need for uh, the the act of of marrying or giving in marriage. We might still have one-flesh unions, committed, monogamous, heterosexual, one-flesh unions, simply without the need for the act of taking vows, Uh, in the same way perhaps that Adam and Eve simply were man and wife. Maybe that's a stretch, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, At the end of the day, this is kind of all speculation, and actually, that's the point. Uh, based on this text, I might say it doesn't look good for marriage after the resurrection—at least, not marriage as we know it. Um, but I, I might add that if there is no marriage as we know it, it's because there will be something better. And if that's difficult to imagine, I don't know. Uh, just remember that the guy—the guy—the God who created marriage is also making the new heavens and the new earth. If you can't imagine something better than marriage, you also, it's possible, are not married to me. But I don't really know what our resurrected life will look like, so I'm hesitant to say for a fact that there will be no marriage and that I know exactly why. The Apostle John, in the book of 1 John, said that we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. This is John. He knew Jesus as well as any of the other apostles or better. And he says, I don't know what we're going to be like when God's done working on us. God hasn't fully revealed what the age to come is going to be like or even what we ourselves are going to be like. And that's the point. The Sadducees are off base because they are assuming that the post-resurrection world will be just a continuation of this one minus the death part. So they come up with their little hypothetical situation based on this assumption that it's just the current world as we know it, only with us raised to life within it. But Jesus points them to this important contrast between this age and the age to come. So that brings us to the second question I mentioned. What does Jesus say about the age to come? Most obviously, it's not just a continuation of this life. This presumably hypothetical one bride with the seven bridegrooms would no longer be bound by those seven marriage covenants which belong to the current age that's passed away. The age to come is a whole new world. And with it comes a new fantastic point of view, find it to be a dazzling place we never knew, with new horizons to pursue, every turn of surprise. It's interesting to speculate about what the new heavens and the new earth might be like. I remember some uh, very uh, intriguing youth group conversations about this when I was uh, leading the youth ministry here. There were, of course, some intriguing discussions about the eternal bathroom situation and uh, whether we still need them, and I won't go into the details here, uh, but I'll just say there were some there were some creative solutions uh, to that discussion uh, which I'm laughing about internally but I'm not going to share from the pulpit but I'm not I actually like that kind of speculation I mean not necessarily the bathroom kind but I like the speculation about what the new heavens and the earth might be like as long as we keep our separation we keep a separation between our speculation and God's revelation they're not the same but when you're looking forward to something When you're eager with expectation, don't you try to think about what that's going to be like? Whatever it is you're looking forward to, whether it's a a kid thinking about what they might open on Christmas morning or a grown-up wondering about what their kids and grandkids are going to be like as they grow or any of us looking forward to, a, don't know, a new movie or a restaurant or a vacation trip. We try to pick up clues based on what we already know and figure out what it's going to be like, and that's a natural reaction to looking forward to something. We can also, as human beings in this fallen world, start getting cynical and just hope it's not another big disappointment, because disappointment is inevitable here and now. The age to come will not be a disappointment. So what does Jesus say about the age to come? He doesn't reveal everything. We'll be equal to angels, which probably just grammatically just means like angels in some way. In what way will we be like angels? I don't know. Jesus probably brings up angels because the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, so he's targeting one of their mistaken beliefs. Like angels uh, should probably take its shape and meaning from the other stuff that Jesus says. That we can understand more clearly those who attain the age to come cannot die anymore they are sons of God being sons of the resurrection so the obvious point is that death is out of the picture and that's a big deal it means so much more than just the same kind of life we have now but extended forever You occasionally find the odd sci-fi or fantasy story about someone who becomes immortal and hates it um, because life gets old, it gets boring, there's no shape or story to your existence. You've seen it all and done it all and there's nothing left to look forward to. And I believe it. Living forever under the conditions of the fall, that's not heaven. That's hell by definition. But if death is genuinely out of the picture, a lot more has to be out of the picture first with it. Death is the wages of sin. If death is out of the picture, then sin is out of the picture. If sin is out of the picture, we will no longer fall short of the glory of God. Nothing left to separate us from God. Like angels, we can stand before the throne of God and serve him without fear. Sons of God with his image perfectly, fully restored in us. So we reflect his glory as we were made to do. We'll finally be who we were made to be. That's what it means when we sang earlier, glorified I too shall be. It doesn't mean that we're going to be worshipped. It means we're going to perfectly reflect the glory of God being who we were created to be. And we can only, we can only imagine what that's going to be like. Paul wrote on this in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read it a little bit. He says, someone will, ask, someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So who we will be, what we will be, what life will be like is just on such a completely different wavelength. It's still our body, but it has been glorified. That is the age to come. There's a Rich Mullins lyric for everything. I should try to work these into every sermon. But he described our experience in life like this. We can't see what's ahead, and we cannot get free from what we've left behind. And that's so often true, isn't it? Past sins and mistakes seem to follow us. Past losses and grief just haunt us. Past pains are still felt. But not forever. A new age is coming when we will be free from what we've left behind. At this point, I might, with caution, venture a Mother's Day application of some sort. Motherhood is a high calling. It goes back to creation, back to the words that God spoke to the first man and woman, be fruitful and multiply. Yet now, as the age to come, it's invading this present age already. Paul wrote that it's now the gospel that is bearing fruit and multiplying. That's Colossians 1, 6. And as God works in us, we learn to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's bearing fruit and multiplying. It's the same language. So this is the new creation. That's why... For one thing, we don't encourage men to marry their brother's widows. Continuing family lineage is no longer such a major concern for God's people. The promised snake-crushing seed of the woman has already come. The fruitful multiplication that matters most now and that matters most for the age to come is the fruit of the gospel that every follower of Jesus is called to bear So Christian motherhood is exalted to the extent that raising children is now a fruit of and ministry of the gospel, the growth of the gospel within the home, among your children. But Christian singleness is also exalted to the extent that you bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. In whatever situation we find ourselves, what matters for the age to come is that we live out our calling with our eyes on the promises of God for the age to come, with our eyes on bearing fruit and increasing in the gospel. Well, finally, what does all of this tell us uh, about Jesus? Well, for one thing, uh, and to finish uh, some points in the text that I haven't even gotten to yet, uh, it tells us Jesus sees through the disingenuous question from the Pharisees and goes straight for the jugular of their faulty doctrine. They're not genuinely asking, of course, about the resurrection. They're just trying to attack the idea of resurrection from the dead. Jesus doesn't just defend this view, but attacks theirs on what they see as their turf, perhaps. Remember, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. So Jesus goes to Exodus chapter 3, Passage about the burning bush. And this is where God introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And all those guys were long dead at the time. But God is not God of the dead, but the God of the living, as Jesus says. If there's no resurrection, God should be saying he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If, as the Sadducees believed, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were no more. But God is clear in Exodus that he will deliver the people of Israel from Egypt because of the covenant that he made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Covenants, by the way, are no longer binding if one party no longer exists. So it's not explicit, but it's still there in Exodus 3. God's covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lives on even though they're dead. He still is their God, and they are his people. God continues to relate to them as if they are alive. And so either God is crazy, which he is not, or their story is not over, even though they are dead. If their story isn't over, then there remains resurrection from the dead. But what does this say about Jesus? Again, this whole exchange is not about marriage. It's not even ultimately about the resurrection, but about the authority of Christ. And he displays a unique and unparalleled authority when it comes to the word of God. The Sadducees tried to pit the authority of Scripture against the authority of Christ. And who won? Well, Scripture and Jesus turned out to be on the same side and the Sadducees lost. Luke doesn't record it, but in Matthew, Jesus says they were wrong because they knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And That brings us to a big theme in Luke, which we'll see sometime in the distant future, Lord willing, when we look at the last chapter especially, but... Moses and the prophets testify to Christ. The Bible is a book about Jesus, even the Old Testament, even Exodus 3. And what Jesus has shown us is that this book promises a resurrection from the dead. So to put this all together, Jesus didn't come to improve this current age, to give us our best life now, to give us more of the earthly comfort and prestige and Possessions and the things of this age that we long for now. And that's why people didn't like Jesus. He came to do something so much bigger than what they were looking for. They didn't want something that big, they just wanted more of what they already had. They wanted the glory of Judah restored. But Jesus came to restore the glory of God in human beings, his image bearers. He came to restore and reconcile all things to God. He entered this present age to deliver us from it. He came into the world to die so that in him we might also die to the world and live to God now and forever in the age to come. I want to close with these words of Paul from the book of Romans that I think captures what we're talking about here, who Jesus is, what he has done for us. Father, we thank you that you sent us a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to do so much more than we could ever have asked or imagined. Things that you have prepared for us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. We confess we are sinners, that our hearts at times seem to be idols. factories producing idols and sins that we never could have imagined. Surprised each day at the things that my heart can come up with to twist and to turn good things that you've made into idols, to come up with new ways to sin, new ways to fail to love you with my whole heart and fail to love my neighbor as myself and yet as deep as and as rich as the creativity i have in sinfulness may be your grace and mercy are deeper and richer still your grace has already done what we could never have imagined or made up that the mighty god of all creation would send his Son to die to redeem us, sinful creatures, and to demonstrate your love and mercy and grace, to show that it is beyond our imagination. And if this is how you have already shown your grace to us, what wonders and riches of mercy must remain for us? that you have promised to lavish upon us in the age to come. We acknowledge that we are not worthy of these things, and yet we praise you, our God and Father, for your grace and your mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. We ask that as we continue our life in this age, you would keep our hearts and our minds focused on your promises in your word, promises relating to what you have already done for us in Christ, that if anyone is in Christ, he is now a new creation, and the promise of the resurrection from the dead and eternal life in the new creation, fully restored the image of God, reflecting your glory and beholding your glory. We don't know what that will be like, but we are eager to find out. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name.